Hi, everyone. Welcome to 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, your host, and this is our show where we talk about the news, tease apart what's hype, what's real in the headlines, and where we are on the long arc of innovation when it comes to different tech trends. There's a lot of big news this week, so stay tuned for more 16 Minutes on the other items. But here, we're covering the news coming out of Apple's latest event yesterday morning, where they announced a number of things, including a new iPad and groundbreaking A14 Bionic processor, as well as new watches and services for healthcare, which is what we'll focus on in this episode. So let me quickly first summarize the news, and then I'll introduce our two experts. As a quick reminder, none of the following should be taken as investment advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information. But basically, what Apple announced is the latest Watch Series 6, which has a new kind of sensor. So in addition to everything the watch already does, activity monitoring, heart rate, sleep tracking, etc., it now also enables blood oxygen measurements, which we'll talk about briefly. They also announced a lower price point Apple Watch SE. So that's a very high-level summary just to get us started. I'd love to hear from you both why this news matters from your vantage point, and then we can dig into the details. Oh, and let me introduce you, our two experts, to the audience. We have A6NZ general partner Vijay Pandey of A6NZ Bio, where he covers healthcare investments, AI, and other areas. And Rachel Kalmar, who is a data scientist and former fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and is now director of product management at Tableau Software. But I actually know her as a longtime wearables expert who holds the world record for number of wearable sensors worn continuously. In fact, when I met you years ago, Rachel, back when you were working, I think, at Misfit Wearables, you had an armful of watches on your wrist, which really stuck out to me. I've been wearing at least four wearables since 2012. My peak was 38 devices every day. Oh my God. They've all started breaking and falling off and the companies have disappeared or been acquired. And so now I'm down to four. I'm actually interested in trying out some of the newer wearables. So I think that the lower price point Apple Watch is a really smart move on Apple's part. The more people that are wearing devices, the more data can be collected and the the more we're going to better understand how we can use this kind of data for health and fitness applications. But ultimately, we're also interested in, in using this kind of data for more clinical applications as well. And the more people that are wearing devices can help the ecosystem broadly better understand how to make devices more wearable, more useful. And so having a lower price point is going to enable more people to get started. There's a couple of different aspects about going clinical, because if you start with fitness, that's a pretty safe space. You know, you're giving some advice, but you're not making medical diagnoses. And, you know, they made it very clear that they want to stay away from diagnosis. And that's a regulated area where you have to be very careful. But the ability to serve up all this data for a clinician to make a diagnosis or to give you a heads up that you really need to see your doctor now, that's really key. And I think you start with people who care. And I'm kind of in this category of people who are crazy about working out, they're going to care. They're going to buy their watches. They're going to look at this stuff. They're going to really need this. And then, you know, it starts expanding out to their family, to their friends, and, and starts expanding from workout to health more broadly. What I'm basically hearing you say is it's almost like a Trojan horse starting with this and then getting into more things. Yeah. As BJ mentioned, we're getting closer and closer to having the kind of data that can be used for clinical applications. I think there are definitely things that can be done with the kind of data we have already. Having the new sensor, having the the blood oxygen sensor is also pretty exciting. Say that one challenge and 
anytime that we add more sensors, this is going to be an issue is there's a trade-off with battery life. And so I'm Mm -hmm. curious to see how that works out. As somebody who's worn many, many devices, I know that that is the hardest part is making sure that they're all charged. And for some of the features that they've announced, like the fall detection, that's really awesome. But if I'm charging my watch in the middle of the night, or say my grandmother was charging her watch in the middle of the night, it wouldn't catch a fall. And I think that that is one of the times that people would need fall detection the most. Yeah. One of the things that I think particularly interesting about just the watch form factor is that you're always wearing it. You can buy a relatively cheap sensor to measure oxygen levels, but the fact that it's always on you without you having to think about it and basically gathering that data and being able to warn you when something comes up without you even having to think about a problem. I think that's where the big wins are going to be. It's if you were already feeling sick and then you went to the SBO2 monitor to confirm that something was weird, you know, it doesn't really add that much more, but actually Catching things early is where things get interesting. Right. And in particular, we talked about this in our past episode when it came to wearables and the news of Fitbits contract with Singapore, the idea of longitudinal measurement. And I would love to hear both of your thoughts on this because then you're not only just norming against like some generic baseline, but it's longitudinal over your own lifetime, like of wearing the device, like the system begins to understand what your baselines personally are and should be. So we make a really important point that people often don't realize that the variation from person to person can be really quite large and that you really want to see how you compare to your previous self and how you change over time. And, you know, you go to the doctor's office maybe once a year. It's so anecdotal. And even if it's maybe slightly more precise or accurate, that longitudinal data from that sensor, especially when combined with modern machine learning, really gives data sets that we've just never had before at a time where I think we know what to do with it. I absolutely agree. One way I had thought about this kind of data was every time that you go into your doctor's office to have tests done, that's kind of like having a high quality studio portrait. You know, the lighting is good. The camera is good. Everybody's wearing their nice clothing and they're posed. I don't know if people actually do I know my mom made me do them. (laughs) We have a series from growing up. But if you really want to get a sense of what goes on in a family, what is somebody's life like, you know, Instagram photos or Snapchats or just any kind of cell phone picture, the collection of those is going to give you a much better idea of what somebody looks like than just looking at the studio portraits. We're not ready to get rid of doctor's offices and high quality testing, but the longitudinal data from devices, even though it might be lower resolution, can really help fill in the gaps and give us a more complete picture of your health overall. One quick note to extend your analogy even further is if you think about even the day-to-day selfies, Instagram posting that give you, quote, a truer portrait, they're also very curated. The beauty of any activity tracker is it tells you the truth. You can't curate like (laughs) what how many steps you posted and didn't post. Like it is just reflecting because it's always on. Yeah. I mean, another analogy here might be something like a smoke detector. It's something that just gives you an early warning that, hey, you should get up, you should look at this. This is something that deserves your attention. And for some cases, these types of early warnings can be really powerful. Now, people always worry about like false positives and overloading the system. But I think the type of information we're getting here is also data points that are very well known. So it's not going to be something esoteric or something that your doctor wouldn't be able to interpret. It's something that would be relatively straightforward. So one of the premises of the show is to also tease apart what's hype, what's real. And I actually want to talk really briefly about the importance or not importance of this blood oxygen sensor. 
it almost wondered when I was watching the event, like, is this somewhat, you know, performative given the timing and the context of people wanting to know? I mean, just to quickly clarify, so oxygen saturation or SpO2, it represents a percentage of oxygen being carried by red blood cells from the lungs to the rest of the body. So it basically indicates how well this oxygenated blood is being delivered throughout the body. And their blood oxygen sensor uses like four clusters of green, red, and infrared LEDs along with photodiodes on the back crystal of the watch to measure light reflected back from the blood. And then Apple Watch uses an advanced algorithm to figure out these kind of on-demand measurements as well as background measurements when they're inactive. So that's kind of how it works. My question for you both is what's hype, what's real here? Because Vijay, earlier you were saying that these are very cheap. Like that's actually not necessarily the most exciting thing. And a lot of people have talked about how COVID-19 disease affects oxygen levels in the blood. People have even been stockpiling on like oxygenators and home devices. So would love your guys' quick take on whether you think this is really real. Is it hype? Is it performative? I'd just love a quick pulse check on that. I mean, you can get a pulse ox, which is the SpO2 and, and your pulse for under 20 bucks. So that's a common thing. Actually, I have asthma, so I have that just as a check. But the difference is that that only works when I use it. And so to have that running all the time, much like having the heart rate all the time, I think that's the real thing is that the device that can measure that periodically and I don't have to worry about it draining and I don't have this weird thing on my finger. That's where this gets really interesting. And as they add more and more measurements, it's kind of like with the iPhone where the iPhone originally could only do so many things, but you add GPS and this and that. Then uh, you start having a really rich palette for software developers to start playing mm -hmm. with because you can measure so many things. Right. and measure it all the time. And I think that's really the key sort of significance. Rachel, one of the things that you have talked about in the past, especially when you track back the history of wearables to the quantified self-movement, which again is very different than this. This is meant to be more mainstream and intended to be more broad, especially with the lower price point. But one of the drawbacks in the past has been that we get a lot of data, but we don't actually use it or act on it. Do you have thoughts on how that plays into here? Like they also announced services like Fitness Plus and other things. How do you think those play out when it comes to actual practical change in behavior, given all your studies of wearables and data use? I'm definitely seeing that subscription models for fitness or for premium versions are starting to become the norm. So Apple has this, Fitbit announced theirs, the Amazon Halo will have a subscription, Whoop, uh, which is another performance fitness band, has a subscription model. And we've known for a while that the devices, you buy them once and then that's it. And so I think that the field has been trying to figure out for a mm -hmm. while now, how can we provide some kind of ongoing value that also ties into an ongoing subscription. Starting to give people more than just numbers is what people want, but we had to start somewhere. And so for a while, we've been giving numbers to the people who really want them, the performance athletes, the people who are, are willing to sit down and look at their own data. But now that we have many years of that, we're able to better understand how can we deliver services on top of this data. Right. And the fun side note is that they're also tying together things like music and their trainer system for their fitness app. So like you can really think about like a future really personalized experience 
subscription personalized at scale, which it seems like a bit of a grail there because that's not currently accessible to folks, which I think is super interesting as well. On one quick other note, they also announced today, which I thought was very interesting, particularly because Vijay and I did an episode for episode number eight of this show on how the government of Singapore was working with Fitbit. And it was interesting because at the time it was alleged that Apple had been down for that bid as well. And today they announced that the government in Singapore and Apple are announcing their partnership on a health initiative called Luma Health, which is a personalized program to encourage healthy activity and behaviors using Apple Watch. And it was designed by Singapore's Health Promotion Board with Apple as part of their overall Smart Nation initiative. And Vijay, one of the things you mentioned, because I want to ask a quick question about who pays and how this fits into an integrated healthcare system, is that Singapore has always been an interesting testbed for healthcare experiments. Do you have any thoughts on the significance of the Singapore initiative when it comes to Apple Watch? You know, I think for a lot of people, people need to see whether this thing is really valuable. And is it like nice to have, must have, where is it in there? And if you're a healthcare payer, you want to just crunch the numbers. And it's the unfortunate reality, healthcare is so expensive that you can't just buy things just because you think they're going to work. You have to know. And so to have Singapore take the lead here will give a ton of information. I think all of us are going to be watching to see where this lands. And given the price isn't really that much in the grand scheme of healthcare, care. As long as it's used right, you'll be able to see the value. Devoted Health, one of our portfolio companies, is giving out an Apple Watch as part of their provider care. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, I think, that they're a Medicare Advantage company. And uh, the Apple Watch in the hands of seniors gives information, which would be so much more difficult to get. And to be able to get that in an automated way is very powerful. And that's, I think, the beauty of getting someone like Singapore involved. In their event today, they actually announced a number of collaborations with universities throughout the country with different types of studies to study the efficacy of what they're doing longitudinally. But what you're saying is, ironically, or maybe more interestingly, the Singapore, quote, study, because it's a mass lab experiment in the real world, could actually move the needle more because it could get more outcomes data for payment purposes versus just for like how efficacy actually is or isn't in terms of healthcare. Exactly. In the end, efficacy is important, but that efficacy has to be shown to be significant enough to be worth buying. Paying for. Yeah, exactly. There are obviously very many upsides to having this data for insurance, for healthcare, for population management, but it's not just the monetary cost I think we have to weigh, but also privacy cost. I've decided that I'm okay being a guinea pig and saying, okay, my data is going to be out there in whatever clouds it's in. Can somebody's data be used to prevent giving somebody healthcare or to raise right. their premiums? We know that you have certain patterns of activity. Does that mean that your car insurance should be higher? And right now, we have less of this data, and so it's less of an issue. But as we generate more and more of it, it's not just the monetary cost we need to think about, but also the cost of having all of this very personal data out there. Well, I think it's really interesting because Apple also made a really strong point and very significant actually to talk about their stance on encryption and other debates, because I think they're actually showing us over and over again, like they've been playing a long game for years and they are very adamant about talking about protecting the privacy of users. And they've Mm -hmm. also been big proponents of this concept of differential privacy, where you can essentially disaggregate the identifiable data, even architecturally and infrastructurally. So to your point, Rachel, A, I think it's really important you bring that up, but B, I wonder if this may or may not give them an edge because their history or their marketing history of being really strong on privacy and separating data. Absolutely. From the company perspective, I feel 
relatively comfortable with Apple. I guess it's more from the provider perspective. Like right now, you know, my doctor knows whatever they know from whatever tests I've done, but the more data they have, that data can also be used in ways that I'm not as excited about from, say, the insurance perspective. This isn't necessarily the same, but at the beginning of the lockdown, we were hearing about in Italy where people who are older or in less good health were being told that we need to give these hospital beds to younger, healthier people. And so will I ever be in a position where my health data paints a profile about me such that my healthcare providers will deny me coverage. And so there's an aggregate collection of the health data, but I'm worried about the implications for individuals. I think there's a flip side to that, which is that the reason why these procedures are denied is that the claim that there's not enough evidence to support them, not that, oh, you're sick and I'm not going to give you care. And so actually having the additional data to support it could be an intriguing way to make sure you get the care you need if you can demonstrate that you have these issues. It's a whole nother question in terms of pre-existing conditions and changing insurance, and that's a different mess. But for a given insurance, more data is usually powerful to make the case for why you need something. I was actually thinking about how in the world of credit, they talked about how the minute we liquefied more data streams, it allowed people who wouldn't traditionally get credit to get credit, which is kind of the interesting analogy there too, because it was such a limited aperture. I definitely agree that the pluses and the minuses come together as a package. The more data we have, the better we can provide care. But I do think that it's really important to be talking about the policy side as well. How can the data be used? How can it not be used? This is somewhere where we don't have adequate policy. We have GINA, the Genomic Information Non-Discrimination Act, but we don't have anything like that for wearable data or other kinds of data about us. And so that's an area that I think needs some additional attention. So, okay, bottom line it. Would love your bottom line on this Apple news and the broader tech trend. I'm really excited about the Apple announcement. I think that the lower price Apple watches are going to be a great entry point for people who haven't had access to them before. I think that the more sensors and the more data we have, the better we're collectively going to be able to figure out how to use this data to improve healthcare, to improve fitness, to improve our daily lives. And so excited about having more sensors on more wrists. I think we're in the middle of a, you know, maybe 10 plus year arc where we're starting to see these devices are starting to add more and more capabilities, capabilities that we would normally associate with things closer to a doctor's office. And It's not crazy to imagine if you sort of think about where we're going to be five, 10 years from now, you start to get closer and closer to the doctor's office on a wrist for the very basic things, let's say for primary care. And now that gets really interesting, having all that information, having that help you with your fitness, help you catch things early. And this not just you, it's maybe for your kid or your elderly parent. That type of thing is very much, you know, has been a dream for many years. And this is the sort of, I think, maybe roughly halfway point that we're starting to see utility towards that sort of much larger dream. Thanks for pulse checking where we are in this idea of a doctor's office on our wrist. Well, you guys, thank you both for joining this week's episode of 16 Minutes. Thanks. Thank you.